One of the first really big online influencers that I encountered in my business well over a decade ago was Gary Vaynerchuk, or Gary V as his followers know him. He was crushing it with his wine videos back in 2008, 2007, probably even earlier. So when I had the opportunity to sit down with one of his VPs uh, who joined his marketing agency, VaynerMedia, way back, I couldn't resist. What transpired is a ranging conversation with Joe Quattrone around social media, an amazing realtor story around relocation from California to Tennessee, sobriety and wellness, and V3 videos, vertical viral videos, and their importance for your real estate investing content and business. I hope you enjoy the show and I'd love to know what you get from it. Have a brandtastic day. Welcome to the Real Estate Investor Content Marketing Podcast, where we help you build a private following of investors to finance your next real estate investment project. We're here to show you how to create content that people can't ignore and that turns your real estate investing business into a standout success. In each episode, we'll explore the secrets of content marketing for real estate investors. We'll chat with smart people, give you useful tips, and share success stories from others who've mastered content marketing in their real estate investing businesses. We'll cover topics like writing articles, blog posts, ebooks, video, podcasts, email, marketing, online education, social media, graphics and images, and of course, AI. If it's content, we'll have the experts and the insights you'll need. Whether you're learning to tell compelling stories, figuring out social media, or growing your real estate investing business through content, you're in the right place. And now, on with the show. Okay, Joe, thank you for joining us today. I think I don't think we can have a conversation without talking about Gary V. You know, to, to have worked to work with him. I've had the good fortune of briefly meeting him a couple of times, but I get this kind of sense that he's go. And it, what was it like working with him? You're not wrong. He is go, and then some more goes on top of it. He's probably, you know, I guess in my life, probably the most. Oh, I wouldn't say over scheduled because for him, it's the perfect amount of schedule scheduling. But he's the most scheduled person I've ever been around. I'll give your audience a little bit of an anecdote. There was one moment. This is kind of at the height of the growth of his celebrity, where I was sitting in a meeting with him and uh, a client, and uh, there was a CMO, one of our, our mutual clients in the room with us and, and probably five or six other executives or whatever. And we had a break in the conversation and I look over at Gary, he's sitting right next to me and kind of like how you or I would scroll through TikTok or YouTube shorts or Instagram reels, you know, kind of looking at this infinite scroll. That was him, but when I kind of zoomed in on it and kind of really saw what he was doing, those were his text messages. He had thousands of unopened text messages, maybe tens of thousands of unopened text messages that he was just scrolling through to see if there was something he wanted to dive into and respond to. And I just thought that was an interesting microcosm of the, the difference between being somebody like a Gary Vee versus the everyman is that his you know, everyday stream of communication with all the people in his life looks like us scrolling through a social media app. So that uh, gives you some context of how busy the guy is. Wow. Because I, I do... Kind of get the sense he makes himself kind of very accessible from that sense, and it, it sounds like it. Yeah, I think it's just it's different than some people, you know. So some people that are busy and extremely busy for that matter, where they're scheduled to the nth degree, they're taking you know fifty to a hundred different five minute meetings a day, or whatever the case may be. That level of busyness affects their psyche. They get anxious about it, and they tend to like be short with people, and you know, almost have 
somewhat of an ego about it. And for him, it's not like that at all. He gets energy from being that busy and that connected to people. And I'd say he, he gets better as the day goes on. And as you know, he continues to have meetings, I think he really kind of ramps up the more people he talks to. So I think for him, it suits him incredibly well. And, and I think really for him, he's just a person that attacks his day differently than other people, right? So most people, they fall victim or they fall trapped to, you know, some of the, the, the flow of a, a given day and they try to build in more breaks and do whatever. He's not that way at all. He's, right. he knows his personality. He knows he's got to go hard. Like, like if you understand basketball analogies, like he's driving hard to the paint all day long. So right. he makes sure that he has like people in his life that, you know, can take certain pressures off of him that he doesn't have to deal with. Uh, right. and he's pretty honest with that stuff with his audience. Like that's what he says is what he does. Right. And so when, tell us a little bit about, you know, where the company was at when you joined and, and what kind of things you did uh, yeah. during your time there. So I was hired over 10, about 10 years ago by Gary. I was employed 325. There's been probably over 10,000 people that have worked. Maybe 10,000 might be a little high. I'd say there's probably anywhere between 5,000 and 10,000 people that have worked at VaynerX lifetime since 2009. So I was employed 325. I was part of the, not the entire early OGs, because there's still probably like 50 or 60 people that started before me that are still there. The early day OG Vayner Media was just a sight to behold. It was, you know, hundreds of, 25 to 27 year olds that just were making it up as they went along. I was part of like the next class of people that Gary brought in to kind of, you know, sharpen it up a little bit, make it look a little bit more presentable from an age perspective. So I was uh, hired as one of the first outside VPs because I already had a pretty successful career in social media prior to joining right. Gary. And he really hired me because I could do uh, two things really well. Um, I could talk to CMOs. Uh, I was pretty intelligent when it came to talking to them, understanding them, um, understanding how to communicate with them. I showed no fear around them. Uh, but also he wanted his senior uh, executives to really understand social media at a forensic level, which I did because I had sold Prior to, to joining Gary, I had uh, sold a go-to-market strategy to the heads of Audi of America and Audi Germany, for that matter, got that whole business uh, with the help of uh, some of my colleagues off the ground and operated uh, in the world of automotive for five or six years prior to getting hired by Gary. And yeah, I had been around you know, CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, right. chief legal counsels. Wasn't afraid, and I understood social media pretty pretty right. damn well at that point. So, right. so I was that prospect to Gary that could do both of those things, and and I was one of you know maybe a dozen, two dozen people that he hired over a couple of years to do that. And then to the second part of your question, kind of what was my remit there, and what did I accomplish in my tenure? Um, I think it was it was varied. I mean, I, ha I held several different roles over my decade at the company, but. Something that I probably built a name for myself inside of the organization with was, you know, I was an, a VP and then an SVP of, of client service. And one of the larger portfolios that I got tasked to manage was AB InBev, which for those of your audience members that don't know what that is, it's your Budweiser, Stella Artois, Bud Light, Michelob, Natty, all those brands. And before we had those brands in-house, we had one. We had Shock Top. It was one little tiny brand and my team inside of it was you know, 
three or four people. But by the end of about two and a half years in our massive growth spurt under that portfolio, I had built it up to about a hundred person team across multiple disciplines. And we acquired maybe 14, 15 brands in the portfolio. And we were their digital AOR doing about 17, 18 million dollars a year in annual revenues. And one of the ways that I built that team and that the success there was just by crafting, you know, Gary has a lot of visions for what he sees in the market in term, and he's very vocal about what things are we should be doing. Right. I had a little bit of a different approach. It was certainly, it fit underneath that umbrella. The things that I was espousing were, were certainly things that Gary cared about, but I was a little bit more discerning and focused with my team about what our actual job was to be done. So right around that time that I came in, my first month on the job, Gary pulled an all hands together and told us that Facebook was dropping organic reach down to 1% and they were getting ready to go pay to play. And we were an organic social media agency. So that sounded like a death knell, but it was actually a really good opportunity because they had been, you know, building arms uh, behind the scenes. They were getting ready to launch an app that was going to be much more sophisticated they had a lot of, you know, targeting that they were rolling out that was going to be very, you know, conducive to, to really great advertising spend. It was about to revolutionize the industry and, and people just didn't know that. Um, Gary was very uh, optimistic that we were going to figure out uh, the platform and figure out how to be a world-class advertising buyer uh, in the space. And um I started uh, from that place. I started looking at the industry trends because I didn't want to get caught, you know, kind of with my pants around my ankles and, and not know how <laughs> right. to perform in that job. So I started looking at Mary Meeker reports. You know, Mary Meeker was the famed VC from Silicon Valley. She publishes a state of the internet report every year. I think she still does to this day, even though she's not at Kleiner Perkins anymore. But back in those days in the 2014 timeframe, you know, she was predicting the worldwide growth of this device, you know, not necessarily right. specifically the Apple device, but smartphones in general. And the thing that I started noticing in a lot of the reporting was that, you know, the device was going to proliferate worldwide to a, a large percent of the population worldwide and not just single device, multiple device per household. And then at the same time, you had hockey stick like growth with broadband internet access and Wi-Fi and all these different things. And so what I realized at that moment that maybe not a lot of other advertisers did was that the, the ability to create world-class stories for a smartphone device was just, just near our fingertips. And because it was going to proliferate at such a massive pace and get to such a large scale, uh, my, my instruction to my team was we need to be the best in the world at making videos for this thing and be the best in the world at getting those videos to these things. And so that two-pronged kind of approach, video production, we had to be right. really good at that because this thing was going to be able to crunch forte, you know, four-hour-long movies if we wanted to. Uh, and, you know, we had to understand where our customer was and how addicted to those things they were going to become and know how to reach them in the right apps. And so... Because we were laser focused on that, you could follow the data string out. So like three or four or five years later, once you started looking at our sources of revenue, you know, we were doing 17, 18 million dollars in revenue. About half of that was coming in uh, incremental video production. The other half was obviously retainer fees. So we were really good at 
you know, kind of walking the halls and, and showing our work off to prospective clients in the ABM Beth portfolio and, and gaining customers that way. But we were also really good at gaining a reputation for the types of work we were doing and being the go-to source. So people would come to us naturally as well. So would you say that's one of the biggest lessons you've taken from working there for 10 years? That kind of, because you were thinking about video three, four, five years before the rest of us were even picking up the phone and thinking, how do I point this at myself and say something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, even if you look at Gary, right, but the reason why Gary is so successful is because he has a tendency to be a prognosticator, right? He's out ahead of the curve. He's ahead of the trend. He's giving people advice for where attention's going to be, where it is now, of course, where it has been historically, but the other kind of like, the other leg to that stool is what the future of it's going to look like. <laughs> and right. uh, I think he's had such a good amount of success because he's been right more often than he's been wrong about where communications and technology is headed. And yeah, I'd say when you're in that kind of an environment where people are encouraging you to really be a student of advertising and be smart in terms of doing your research and your homework, I think that level of encouragement from on high with the CEO leads to people like me going out and utilizing my time that way. <laughs> so right. I wasn't the first, I'm not the only, and there will be more uh, like that, that come from Gary's tree that uh, are able to experience that kind of success. Right. So where in your mind is social media now, and probably more importantly, where, where do you think it's heading? What are we going to be seeing over the next few years? Yeah, it's kind of difficult because I think it's at one of the best places it's ever been. If you want to look at it from that perspective, right? Technology is proliferated. Apps are all the rage. Uh, I would say they are not just borderline addictive. They are addictive. So I think that's kind of the other edge of the sword is we have to protect people and make sure that we don't go too overboard. But we're also, you know, such big business. There's a lot of money involved in it. And because that's true, you're going to have, it's going to be really hard to police and regulate and make sure that we don't go overboard, especially now we're seeing it with AI really starting to take over and dominate. It's never been easier for people like me and you to go out and gain access to these AI, you know, bots that can do so much for us in the content creation distribution spectrum. So it's going to look very attractive to a lot of people that to, to want to go out and take advantage of everything that's in, at their fingertips. But there are larger macroeconomic and societal things that we can't lose sight of. Like AI does have the, the power to displace and it can cripple economies if the labor market is not, you know, operating on full cylinders. That's obviously the fear of robots thing that everybody is kind of uh, instilling in you. But we've also got young people who are consuming more addictive content than ever before. And, you know, I, I feel a personal responsibility for that because I've had such a successful career, uh, you know, building these apps, these marketing campaigns to date. Um, but I've also got four young kids, so I've got to be mindful of that as well. In terms of where I think just from a brass tax perspective, like leaving the ethics to the side, where do I think social media is going? I think you know, everybody wants to say, he wants to hear what is the platform that's going to be trending next or <laughs> right. what platform, like that's the easier way to kind of break down that question. It's not as evident to me that there is going to be a new player that comes out of nowhere and takes over like TikTok did. 
Uh, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen anytime soon. What I think is probably more realistic is I think if you look at formats, I think that can give you a little bit of an indication of where the future is going to be. I think everything is going to look more like TikTok in the future. And by that, I just mean what I call the vertical, the viral vertical video or V3. In my inside circles, we call it V3. And that just stands for a viral vertical video or the Instagram reel, the YouTube short, the TikTok, those full screen vertical ads that you swipe up on. Algorithms that really focus on your interests versus algorithms that focus on who you follow and what you say your interests are. I think what we've seen with TikTok is that when you build an algorithm based on your behavior, it is a thousand times more potent and powerful and more addicting because you're not just going off of what people are claiming they're interested in. Most people don't even know what they would actually consume if their subconscious allows them to. <laughs> That's why there was this whole joke, the first kind of like, I would say the first two or three years after TikTok acquired Musical.ly and it started becoming the biggest app on the planet, there was the joke of like, let me see your TikTok. And, you know, people would ask to see the other person's TikTok so they could scroll through the feed and see what they actually listen or look at and care about. And they wanted to see how embarrassing that might be to the person. Because uh, you, you know, to to you know, to most people, we claim that we're interested in X, Y, Z. But then when you look at the behavior, well, why is it that you're seeing all of these random things pop up in your TikTok feed? It's because, hey, like, look, it's, it's not uncommon to be a voyeur. It's the same reason why people, you know, bring traffic to a screeching halt when there's an accident on the side of the road. You know, like right. you're not weird if you have this like weird you know, obsession with seeing certain types of content, it's natural, it's normal. And and I think TikTok proves that out. So I think, I, don't, I, I can't tell you there's going to be a new platform that's going to come up and take over TikTok because I don't think there is one unless the government shut down TikTok in various different countries. Uh, but Instagram could have a, a comeback. Facebook could have a comeback. Snap, Twitter. I think you're going to see more Twitter and LinkedIn are going to start incorporating some of these features. So, I mean, it would be a dream come true for me if Twitter and LinkedIn had more addictive algorithms, then I'd spend way more time there. But <laughs> um, we'll see. We'll see where they go. It's, it's, with your own social media use, do you do you tend to try and restrict it? Is oh yeah, I try. Uh, I mean, I've got four kids, so I can't really spend too much time uh, on the, <laughs> the apps. I really, you know, I spend most of my time doing research, just trying to make sure that my point of views and my consulting for my clients is up to snuff and, and not dated. Um, so I do a lot of like homework in app and try to see what creators are doing, try to see what brands are doing, see how the platforms are, you know, involving their community guidelines and stuff like that. But for personal use, I, you know, I, I do like scrolling TikTok. I'm not going to lie. It is, it is a guilty pleasure, right? But I'd say more so than that, uh, I'm a big YouTube fan. So I listen to YouTube, which is kind of ironic. Like most people watch YouTube. I happen to listen to it because there's so much content on YouTube and I find it very easy to consume long form content, almost like I would consume a podcast. There's just so much more to be had if you're looking at looking for YouTube videos that are really well optimized for sound. So I wind up lit consuming a ton of YouTube, <laughs> but it's kind of like when I do random things, like when I'm washing the dishes or I'm like, cleaning up the house or I'm out for a walk and, you know, like that's how I consume YouTube. Like most people consume podcasts. Interesting. Cause Google's now pushing podcasts to YouTube, isn't it? They've tried a couple of times 
with something separate. And that obviously hasn't worked. And now that I guess they're doubling down on YouTube. Well, um, I think the reason that is, is because if you understand how the algorithm, these like these V3 algorithms, right? Reels, YouTube shorts, TikTok, the way they kind of work is supply and demand. So if, and, and what I'm, what I mean by that is a component of what can make you successful inside of those apps from a growth perspective is fueling the algorithm with more content. So usually wherever you look, if like if it's reels or TikTok or shorts, part of what the prognosticators and the Gary V's in the world push is you need to be doing three TikToks a day, or you need to be doing four reels a day or five shorts or whatever the case may be. They're talking volume, right? Right. And the reason why they're talking volume is because, and it's quite simple, most of us that are business people, we, we, one economic, macroeconomic thing we understand is supply and demand. So if TikTok's the most most successful app in the world, it has the most usage, more people log on to it and spend more hours and minutes on it than any other platform, they have the the demand, right? But what they can't do, what nobody can do by themselves is create the supply. It just would be impossible. There's an infinite amount of demand out there for TikTok-like content. So they have to figure out how to incentivize people to get them the supply they need. So what they do is they don't tell you what's in their algorithm. But if you're an influencer or if you're a brand, figured out that if I put more TikToks out, I'm going to start getting more reach on the back end, right? So it might not be this video. But they're going to start rewarding me the more I keep doing it. And, and also, the more I keep doing it, the better quality I'm going to start putting out. And that's also going to start having a, a, a multiple uh, effects on my results. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these apps that are highly successful, highly used, they're going to incentivize people for volume. And so if you want to have success on those apps, you have to figure out a way to scale your efforts and one of the best known methodologies yet to scale your efforts is create long form content that can then be chopped up and distributed as short form right. content. So hence a podcast, hence a video podcast, hence long form YouTube. There's no, there's, there's a distinct reason why everybody in the world that cares about things like mental health or biohacking knows who Andrew Huberman is or Gary Brecka or any of these people that are widely you know seen in in TikTok for their short podcast clips. It's also starting to happen in comedy when you see think of people like Theo Vaughn or, you know, Dave Chappelle. Like there's a specific way to, you know, these are people that have a platform and they create a lot of long form like Andrew Huberman's podcast is three hours long oh, each episode. Yeah. And that yeah. supplies them with over the course of three hours, if he takes that, gives it to a video editor, he puts it into an, an AI editor like Opus, I mean he might be able to pull 450 clips out of that thing and that would last him like that along with every other weekly episode he does tons of ways he can scale you know right I, so that kind of leads me to the question people listening they're kind of perhaps starting to feel overwhelmed <laughs> what's your best advice for somebody that's you know that they may be hosting occasionally um maybe randomly across a variety of platforms what would be the best two or three things that somebody could really start to, you know, move towards what you've been talking about? I think most people are trying to figure out the strategy first, and they're going to try to figure out how to get success in it. In it. 
they want it to mirror the success they've had in their actual business where I do this, I put this effort in, I get this effort, I get this byproduct out. Social media is not exactly that way anymore. You can still get, certainly get a lot out of it. And I would argue that most people that aren't on social media aren't actually building a brand, but it operates different. It's a labor of love. It's something that you have to think of much more like transforming your body, right? So if you're somebody that wants to, you know, become a bodybuilder or you're somebody that wants to lose a bunch of weight, that's more like what social media is, you know, than instant quick fixes. This is a transformational process that's going to take you 9, 10, 11, 12 months at the least, right? So now when you are able to like successfully scale over that time horizon, what it allows you to do is every other business that you're trying to endeavor into becomes that much easier because you have a personal brand or you have a brand that you can use to scale your other efforts, right? But you got to go through a process, a transformational process that's not going to be overnight. You've got to figure out how to clear your calendar and you've got to figure out a way to make content creation a priority. And it's not going to be one of the, you can't just bolt it onto your day. It's not something like if I spend 15 minutes a day coming up with one social post, it's going to mean I'm going to turn into the next viral sensation. You've got to create a framework for it. Just like anything else important in your life. If you wanted to launch a business tomorrow, you wouldn't spend 15 minutes bolting it onto the end of your day. You know, you'd spend an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever the case may be. And that would be your focal point because two years from now, when you've got a million followers on TikTok, you can use that followers on TikTok to build other, you know, work streams or, you know, revenue streams or whatever the case may be. It's way easier to sell a book in 2024 as an author, if you're already famous, then if you're not. Now, you don't right. have to be famous because you're a celebrity on a TV show. You don't have to be famous because you're, you know, a musician and are in a band and touring and stuff like that. In today's day and age, you can be famous for just being on the internet. Maybe like, I would uh, say fame. Mr. Beast would yeah, be. Yeah, Mr. Beast is a perfect yeah. example. Now, he's way more famous than you have to be, right? Like, right. there's a lot of business people out there that are monetizing far less success on the internet. You know, you know, you don't have to be millions upon millions of people to actually turn it into a monetary endeavor. You can have, you know, 15,000, 25,000 followers on LinkedIn and, and turn that in and parlay that into something. It may not be as much as like Mr. Beast can go out and turn anything into a brand right now. Mm. He's turning, he's creating hamburger enterprise, right. he has chocolate right. candy bars at Walmart. Like anything he touches turns into a brand now, but that's because he spent a lot of time building out this brand, Mr. Beast, right? Right. So, so that's how they have to think about it. And my biggest advice is don't think about it like a, just a channel amongst every other channel that you would like, like you're thinking about doing a print advertising campaign. Like think about it as a seminal, you know, kind of formative part of your business that will lead to success in every other part of your business. And, and are you, from what you've said, it sounds like it's either Instagram or YouTube or TikTok seem to be the ones, but I guess if I, I don't, I, yeah, I think Twitter or X has said that they're going to do more with video. They just recently, yeah, I think. I mean, said, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it if Twitter and LinkedIn start doing, I mean, it, it's less about what channel. And I think it, I can't underscore that enough. Don't focus on the channel, focus on the format. The format is vertical video or, you know, and there are other areas like and then you also have to think about like what's suited to your personality type. Like some people just aren't going to be good on video because they don't have a good personality. I'm probably one of those people. I'm probably better on podcasts and radio or, 
you know, written because I'm more of like a scientist when it comes to this stuff. I'm not like a very attractive personality that's going to like, you know, wow you with my cursing and my performative, you know, hand gestures on stage and stuff like that. Like my old boss, but I'm more introspective and I'm more kind of strategic about things. And then I am like bombastic and, you know, provocative, if you will. And so everybody's going to have to think about what kind of contribution they are comfortable giving. I'm also very private human. Like I don't, I, I never put my kids on screen. I don't like to tell anybody where I'm at. I don't want anybody to know where I live, <laughs> you know? Like, so you're gonna have to figure out what kind of person you are, but then break down the desire to understand from a channel perspective, what channel is going to be successful in any month or year or whatever channels come and go, right? Like there was a point in time where it was MySpace and there was a point in time before that when it was Friendster. And then, you know, Facebook came along and had its day in the sun and Twitter came along and had its day in the sun. And YouTube at some point was the, the king. Instagram came along and was the king. These things will get, come and go. And, and the thing that I think a lot of people have the biggest frustration with is they fall in love with the channel that got them there, right? They have a little bit of success on mm-hmm. one platform and then the platform of the day goes somewhere else. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, I built a 50,000 person following over here on Twitter and now I have zero on Instagram, but I don't want to spend time on Instagram because I have an audience over here on Twitter, right? That's not the point. The point isn't that you know you are some dominant personality on a platform. You have to understand how the platforms work and how they want people to interact with them. And, and one of the key ways to do that is understanding what the formats are within it and what consumers are actually interacting with, right? So, and Gary mentions this a lot. One of the reasons why he's good at TikTok is because he was once upon a time good at Vine. And Vine was a very specific short form vertical video platform that was like a precursor to what Snap was doing and then eventually Musical.ly and TikTok started doing. And it was performative. It was something where people were doing skits and they were trying to figure out how to be creative. and So because he had that experience mastering that format for Vine, he then could jump into TikTok, you know, some seven, eight years later and not miss a beat and understand exactly what to do. So I would focus on that more than I focus on the channel. Like, and then it's also going to help when you're starting to figure out how to scale up front. Like, you know, if you need content to go into a vertical video platform, right? Like if I wanted to create some scale through vertical video, the number one thing I would do is understand, okay, what's my long form content need to look like, right? right? Am I doing a video podcast? Am I doing, you know, some sort of like an interview show? Am I doing, you know, what am I doing that's going to allow, am I a stand-up comedy guy? Like, do I have things that are going to allow me to go in and then edit them into shorter pieces of content that are going to work on those platforms? If I'm not comfortable doing vertical video, that's fine. How am I going to get the written word out at scale, right? Maybe I go out and I create a really nice Substack or medium, you know, presence and I publish something three times a week and it's, you know, I don't know, 5,000 words or whatever it is. And then I use that source material to turn out tons of quote cards on Instagram or tweets or LinkedIn posts and stuff like that. Cause those are platforms that emphasize written word. You can also take nowadays with AI, you could think about doing it in reverse. You could go out and you could build scripts and you could put it into an AI bot and you could create long form video with actual stock video libraries plugging into something that builds against your script. And you could be somebody that takes, you know, written text and turns it into video that doesn't feature your face. 
So that's why I think formats matter so much. It's not necessarily about what channel's trending at any moment in time. And you're also going to come back down to earth and be super bummed out when the attention moves away from that platform. So just focus on what you're good at and how you can find the right type of format that can be scaled. Right. You make a really good point. I, I know somebody that was uh, pretty successful on Vine and built yeah, an incredible following. He did fantastic videos, very funny. And then of course it disappeared and he disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I've, I've noticed he's just come back. It, I literally, I've just started to see him posting again, but it, I guess he just went into a disappearing well, funk. So he, probably. He, he probably didn't go into a disappearing funk. It's just that what came after Vine in terms of like consumer attention was Instagram, most likely. And Instagram is a very highly curated, very highly, uh, you know, it's like a magazine, right? So like him for him he probably doesn't care about presenting himself like a magazine like a high-end beautiful influencer that's traveling to mykonos and doing all this kind of stuff like that just probably wasn't for him so he sat it out until right something else popped up that was more suited to his personality is good my point. guess good point yeah that's and a he good probably point. didn't even do that intentionally he probably just did it <laughs> subconscious and it's probably like forget about instagram <laughs> that is not for me i'm gonna wait until something else you know comes in that right. can tap into my talents right Couple of questions, Joe, I'd like to ask guests before we kind of wrap up and let people know where they can find out more about you. Personal brands. We've mentioned a couple of personal brands, Gary V, obviously, and Mr. Beast. Who is a favorite brand of yours and why? I've got so many good personal brands. I mean, like I, I mentioned a few before that I'm currently tracking with. I love Andrew Huberman. I love Gary Brecka. Just because uh, at this stage in my life as a 44-year-old with four kids, I'm trying to optimize my health and stuff like that. But obviously Gary V has been very important in my life. I'm trying to think who else pops off the top of my head. I love Sia Vaughn. I love, you know, comedy is a way that I can kind of unplug from the real world sometimes. And I find his brand of comedy to be pretty, pretty funny. I also love what he's doing on social media. So he's beyond being just a comic at this point. He understands distribution fundamentally. He's built his own podcast. So I think he's doing a lot of the fundamentals the right way from that perspective. It's easy to see why he's showing up in my news feeds all the time. Yeah, I think that's a good handful of them. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I think Huberman, to your point about somebody who's not necessarily dynamic on video, but he's taken that podcast piece and, as you say, just creating Well, content. I think, yeah, it's the thing with him is that he takes, he's not like, he's not an entertainer by any stretch of imagination, but he takes the really complex and makes it understandable, right? So I'd put him in the same category as like a Simon Sinek or somebody... When you're talking about brain science and brain health, like nobody wants to see the actual words. We just want to know what the effect of your actions are. So I think somebody like a Andrew Huberman it does a really good job of making that, those complex things very simple. I think that's why he's gained such a massive following. Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And what about, uh, we, we, as I say, we can't have a conversation without mentioning AI and we ha we've kind of mentioned it. What's, what's the latest tool or piece of technology that you're enjoying using? Well, I love ChatGPT, and that's going to sound like it's a very kind of canned answer, but I've got some backstory to it. So long language text is something I kind of came up in the industry with, but back in the early days of social media, we called it listening tools. So when you're monitoring your brand's performance, you use listening tools and that we had a variety of them, Sysimos, Brandwatch, Visible Measures, all these different types of listening tools that would monitor your brand's success in terms of conversation happening in social media. But the way before 
AI started coming in and before natural language processors were even a thing, we had Boolean syntax, which was, it was essentially a different language. You would type in these long queries into these tools and it would regurgitate out what the market looked like and the market being social media conversation around your brand. And the way that you would actually build reporting for your brands was you would keep refining these searches until you got the nail on the head in terms of the visualization and the size of the conversation, all that kind of stuff. So when ChatGPT and other long language text AIs came out, it was really, I picked it up in maybe 10 seconds because I've had that experience dating back 15 years of doing that. Let me set my parameters really broad at first. And then let me get the results in and then keep hacking at it and honing it into the right query. And I think that's a key piece because most people, when they look at ChatGPT, they want to force it into like a Microsoft Word, like a they want to force it into a box where they are constantly iterating off of the first version of it. And it's really not about that. You have to keep plugging away at the refinement aspect of it until you get the the thing that you want versus trying to constantly be editing some one one query into perfection. And and so that's why I love ChatGPT because it, it fits into my style of research anyway. <laughs> right. And I use it, I use it almost like an employee. You know, I, I feel like I get as much productivity out of ChatGPT as somebody does like a junior employee first out of college. Hmm. Interesting. How can people find out more about you? What are the best places? And you have a podcast as well. So please let people know about that. Yeah. So yeah, if you're sober curious, which a lot of people like, a lot of people are these days, it's a massive trend. You can go head on over to fuzzyishpodcast.com where you'll find all of the episodes from the Fuzziest Podcast or the Kind of Sober Show. We're an interesting spin on sobriety. All of us have been alcohol-free for a number of years, uh, but we're also um, pretty pro uh, other things like cannabis and microdosing and stuff like that. Um, mo mostly from a wellness perspective and always from a temperance perspective. So we're, we're just really trying to espouse this thing that we call the me total lifestyle or which kind of can be summed up in terms of hustle plus wellness equals me total. Or, you know, if you think about excellence through temperance or something like that, we're trying to change the narrative and make sure that when people think sober, they don't think you wrapped your car around a tree or you're in an AA program or you know, what have you, like Hollywood and corporate America have done a really bad job of, of putting sober people in a good light. And so, you know, our insight is just that most of the really highly successful people that we know in life, me and my co-hosts, most of them have a really good relationship with alcohol and consume very little of it and, and are constantly looking at ways to kind of optimize their life, whether it be, you know, physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. And that's kind of what we're all about. Hmm. Wonderful. I love it. Hustle plus wellness. You know, I've worked with a lot of people. In fact, actually, because I've got an interesting anecdote about the real estate space. So I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I live outside of Nashville, Tennessee. The only reason I'm in this house right now is because of a real estate agent that also had a podcast. <laughs> and so yeah. I was in California at the time during COVID and we, me and my wife had made a determination that we wanted to leave California in like August of 2020, maybe like right around the time when our third child was born. And we had to get approval from our bosses to do so. Both, both of our bosses, they lived in New York and they didn't really care too much. So we, right around the time when I went on paternity leave, I talked to my boss and was like, Hey, we're thinking about getting out of here. And he was like, cool, no problem. He was like, I don't, I don't care where you live. Just as long as you get your work done. 
uh, so, and my wife was the same case. Like she didn't have any people in California. Her whole company was in New York. So we were free agents for the first time in our life. We can move anywhere we wanted to. And so we were looking out, we were doing some research. Somehow we, we kind of honed in on Tennessee because uh, a lot of Californians were moving out here. And I came across a podcast called Exodus California, Moving to Tennessee by Paul and Joanne Kraft. Wow. And it just so happens that they had made the similar exodus from California to Tennessee, maybe eight years prior or something like that. And, and so they had a podcast that was all about what to expect if you were going to be moving from California to wow. Tennessee. And I not only just got familiar with it, I listened to the whole entire you know, podcast all, I think at the time there was like 12 episodes. There's now probably like 30 or something like that. But I listened to all 12 episodes like five times because once you make the decision, you kind of have to live, you have to sit with that for a minute. You have to kind of constantly be reinforcing the decisions in your head because real estate doesn't move as fast as other things. Like you make the decision that's great, but now you got to wait, you got to wait out your lease. The kid's got to get out of school. You've got to figure out how to compete with all these people that are in the local market in a pretty hot real estate market. So you got to figure out, you know, pre-existing or building something and, and all that different kind of stuff. So between the time that we made the decision and when we actually put our deposit on the house that we were going to build, decided to go build to the time that we actually closed on that house, you know, there was like six months until, you know, before we figured out where we were going to live. And then there was another six months on top of that before we moved into the house. <laughs> so there was a lot of need for me to stay motivated uh, about moving to Tennessee. And then when I actually came time to come out here and check out some of the areas, I actually looked up Paul and Joe and Crack, the podcasters. They owned a real estate agency here in, in the middle Tennessee area called Maplewood Realty. And I chose them to be my realtors because I <laughs> loved their podcast. <laughs> That's and a great so, story. And it's a great story. And it's also a great example of niche content that that yeah. you know probably attracts exactly you know if that's you then you're there well, they were and, and, and it's absolutely spot on from a trend forecasting perspective so we started off our conversation with me kind of forecasting the market of social media and digital mobile phones all that kind of stuff these guys forecasted the massive exodus of people out in the state of California and a portion of those people coming to Tennessee before anybody else. Now, if they really wanted to scale a podcast like this, they could have taken advantage and had Exodus California moving to Tennessee, Exodus California moving to Idaho, Exodus California moving to Florida, Exodus California moving to Texas. They could have cornered the market on the fleeing of people from California, but it's absolutely true. On my street right now, there's only, I live on a cul-de-sac tucked yep. up in the back of a new build. There's maybe two families that are from Tennessee. The rest of us all came from California, Washington, uh, all these various <laughs> different states to, to Tennessee. They call our street Refugee Ridge because it's all people that live <laughs> in the West Coast. I love it. I love it. That's a great yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank so, you for that. We'll, we'll make sure that is in the show as well. That's just perfect. Thank you. I've really enjoyed. I have really enjoyed our conversation. I, I, yeah, I cool. You do. Right. We shall. Uh, we'll make sure that is all in the show notes. And, and Joe, thank you for taking your time today to tell us more about your thoughts on on social media and, and a wider conversation. It's really fascinating. And uh, have yourself yeah, a fantastic day. Thank you. Awesome. You too. All right. Thank you. Well, was that fantastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business? So get to it. Thank you for listening and have a brandtastic day.